0: Uh, Brielle, how about you? Uh, How did you get into archaeology?
1: I honestly came to McEwen to do language translation. I wanted to translate from French to English. Um, So I fell into it by accident, as seems to be a running theme for me. Uh, (laughs) I took a class which was um, introduction to archaeology. I did very well in it. But unfortunately, I'm Uh, physically disabled so I knew that I wouldn't be able to put those practices to use anywhere Um, after taking um, I think it was biological anthropology with Dr. Bittner. I took the archaeology of gender class because it had the word gender in the name um, and discovered that I I have a deep love for it Um, I'm not sure if archaeology specifically is where I plan to go in the future, but it's definitely become a big contender.
0: That's very cool. And Dr. Bittner, how about you? How did you get into archaeology?
1: Um, I always was into uh,
2: archaeology and anthropology. I had a uh, amazing grandfather who always made sure I had a subscription to National Geographic as my Christmas present every year. Uh, but honestly, I have to attribute to what got me into archaeology uh, to my high school drama teacher of all places. Um, He had us do this wonderful project, and the long and short of it was when I was talking with him about what I wanted to do when I grew up, um, I said to him, well, I want to direct and I want to be in the theatre, and he's like, no. He's like, I think you have this real kind of anthropological, archeological bent, check it out, come back to me. Uh, So I enrolled in anthropology courses as an undergrad, still kind of thinking, oh, maybe theatre is where I need to be. And after taking my, my very first course in anthropology, I think it was very much the very first day of class, um, Anthropology 101 was taught by Dr. Charlie Schwager with me, who's a, uh, an environmental archaeologist, uh, um, a quaternary geologist, and he very much really reinforced to me how great it was. And then, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, these continuing excellent experiences uh, that I had as a student doing field work as a consulting archaeologist in northern British Columbia, uh, doing my first field school in Idaho then graduate work I'd go on to do in Ontario and Tanzania. And now really what keeps me in archaeology is my students and taking students into the field or having them in the classroom or the lab or challenging these ideas of what archaeology is. That's what really uh, keeps me going these days. That's, that's the fire. So having students like Brielle, that's, that's why I'm here and I'll continue to be here in the future.
0: Amazing. I
1: heard just grew three sizes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Bittner. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Bittner and her student, Brielle, from McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Today we're going to be talking about Archeogaming and using social media to expand the classroom. If you enjoy the Go Dig Go Whole podcast, please consider rating it five stars on uh, iTunes or on any other player that you're streaming the podcast on. Uh, please share it with your friends, family, uh, fellow students, coworkers, whatever. Um, and let me know what you think. Um, always welcoming feedback and participation. So you can uh, find me at go to go hole.com or on any of the social media as go dig a hole. <music> Dr. Bittner, would you mind giving us a quick background on you?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I'm the lab instructor currently at McEwen University. I've been teaching in institutions since about 2008, and I've been at McEwen for the last few years now. Uh, Braille was first my student um, in one of my lab courses, I believe, and then we uh, did an extended—well, not extended. Study project, but a, a research project around some topics akin to archaeogaming in an archaeology agenda course. And then after that, Brielle and I had discussed doing an independent study course, and that's the course that we're talking about today.
0: Very cool. And Brielle, how about you? Um, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Um, so I'm a third year undergraduate anthropology student at McEwen. Um, my Interests primarily in school are language revitalization and archaeogaming, Um, and actually I just finished up an honors application uh, for a project that would hopefully include both of those.
0: That's awesome. And uh, tell us a little bit about language revitalization. Uh, What about it uh, interests you?
1: Um, So a couple of years ago, I took ethnographic research methods in language revitalization with uh, Dr. Sarah Shulist, who is also on Twitter. And um, I took that as part of the Canadian Indigenous Language and Literacy Development Institute. Uh, And it was just easily one of my favorite classes. It was an incredible experience um, because we were able to practice ethnography as we were learning to practice it. Oh, wow. Um, So it was very hands-on. And um, SILDI is actually a 10-day intensive course. Um, So actually... all all told you get three credits and I think it's seven days it's one week Um, so it's very intensive Um, I then went on to work with SILDI as a uh, office administrator and I got to see firsthand um, not only how people react to language endangerment, um, because this is something that's very close to home, but also the, um, technological processes that are involved with, uh, language endangerment and language revitalization. Um, in Canada, uh, due to residential schools, there was, um, cultural genocide. And so you have people who, uh, are scared of speaking their language, but still want to get that, that piece of their culture back. So it's, it's, uh, very heavy material, but it's so, so rewarding, um, especially with programs like SILDI to see the, the transformation that occurs.
0: Yeah, that is amazing. And I could see how there would be, I mean, that trauma is only a couple generations removed. So, you know, that's still very fresh in many families. Um, so I think that it's great that there's, you know, such an effort to, you know, try and heal that trauma and try and, you know, reclaim what was you know, damaged.
1: Yeah, well, and programs like Sildy. There's also um, ALD, uh, which works similarly. There's there's other scattered programs throughout Canada and uh, North America. Um, they they provide tools for people and for communities to heal in the ways that they they want to heal in the ways that they need to heal, as opposed to the ways that um, we, as a Canadian institution, uh, want them to heal. Um, and so that's, that's one of the more remarkable things that I found, um, with, with, I guess, working in language revitalization and learning about it is that, um, there is that huge disconnect between, uh, the institutional, uh, desires and the community desires. So it's, uh, yeah, just definitely really good to see people, um, Gaining the tools and knowledge and skills that they they need to do it on their own terms.
0: Yeah, and like you said, you know, applying their own values because you can't really um, heal the the wounds of colonialism by imposing more colonialism. Uh, so that's great that yeah, they get it's, to. it's a rough go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's come back around to this this course that you had done together. Um, so I first came into it on Twitter. Um, I can't remember exactly what what brought it into my feed, but um, you know, I, I ran across one of your twit uh, like a tweet thread, and I was really interested in it. And I thought it was neat that um, you were using the hashtag. What was it, Anth 421?
1: Um anth 421 was actually my language and power class but uh the independent study was uh anth 498 I believe.
0: Ah yeah. Yeah. Um all the same using a hashtag to you know kind of thread tweets through a course is a really clever use of of you know Twitter as a social media and at I think around the time I had I had you know become familiar with um you know your tweets and and the kind of work that you were doing in that course. Um, I was presenting at a conference about using social media in archaeology, and uh, you know one of the things I said in my in my presentation was you know you've you've got to have something like a a hashtag that's consistent, and I looked over. You know in my spare time during the conference I saw you were exactly doing that and i was like oh my god this is a perfect example so um and then the content too was super interesting because you were pulling in a lot of different perspectives um to archaeo gaming and uh kind of different perspectives that i had not quite considered and uh so i think it, it would probably be better to hear it in in your own words kind of what you were exploring and how you kind of came to the questions that you were asking.
2: Um, I can start if you want, Brielle, and then we'll go from there. I was like,
1: let's (laughs) super heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: But first I'll just quickly comment on, yeah, using hashtags for tracking courses on Twitter is something I've been doing for as long as I've been on Twitter. And I find that it's a really, as an instructor, uh, a way for me to expand the classroom space, right? Beyond just the formal confines of our physical classroom. And I found that a lot of, as you know, on Twitter, a lot of um, new articles are coming out constantly. People are talking about their research, their research and process, especially pre-publication, field work, especially archeology span as it's occurring, um, announcing what people are up to, uh, challenges they're encountering. So I found that that was a really great way to connect uh, the lived reality of being an archeologist and being an anthropologist in general, or even a science communicator or a scientist from twitter and bringing into the classroom allowing students to track it on their own time outside of that space and then in terms of uh, the course um, i think it really just came out of a, a shared mutual interest that we have in gaming that we come from it from different perspectives um, some of the uh, challenges that we've both personally had in terms of identifying as a gamer and what that means. And then also this idea of taking some of the, the practices, the principles, the methods, and the theories of archeology span and applying it first in the kind of traditional sense to these virtual wor- worlds. And then also thinking about how we could expand upon this idea of, well, where can gaming be practiced and who actually is practicing it? So uh, really our, our class, Was a discussion on these ideas as they were occurring in real time and increasingly talking with people, other archaeogamers, other people talking about archaeogaming, other archaeologists and anthropologists uh, through Twitter to expand our classroom beyond just the two of us.
0: That is really cool. And yeah, so the the aspect of expanding the classroom was amazing because uh, just like you said, I was able to kind of follow along and, and see the conversation as it unfolded on Twitter. And uh, it was very, very interesting and and very thought-provoking. And so, Brielle, how did you come to, um, you know, what were some of the questions that you were exploring with this in uh, your paper that you were doing for that course?
1: Um, So, I actually didn't end up doing a paper. Uh, That was the original goal. And then um, one of my research methods ended up being large enough to, like, subsume the paper. Nice. Um, So, it was a happy accident. (laughs) But... um, originally when I went into the class I wanted to practice archaeogaming. I wanted to have um, praxis built into the course so that um, I would be able to learn the methods that earlier in um, the archaeology of gender um, I had theorized about. Um, The original paper that got all of this started was um, looking at color palatization as a way that we can read gender through video games um and it was actually inspired by um a project out of the university of victoria in british columbia here that was colors of lego as they have uh, progressed through time so because video games are a media that uh constantly shift the way that they are able to transmit color uh, i figured it would be a perfect way to get the archaeo gaming ball rolling uh i made a a small mock-up of a program in python but uh in speaking with some computer science um professors and uh friends of mine the data output would have been too difficult for it to be manageable um Uh for me anyways at an undergraduate level anyone who's listening to this and wants to steal that please do so i want this to become a real thing <laughs> but yeah the data output was like you would need to have it in 3d which means that you're hooking it up to vr so that it's correctly um processable for human eye and uh it just became way too much for me so we turned it into the independent study and um again happy accidents abound uh we i don't think I did a whole lot of archaeo gaming. Um, it ended up being an ethnography of archaeo gaming, so we ended up looking at um, who is currently practicing it, how are they practicing it, what are the ways that the term is not necessarily being misused, but the ways it's being underutilized. Okay. Um, so one of the one of the primary conversations that sticks out in my head was um, a professor out of the University of Calgary who I believe is a historian, but don't quote me on that, uh, was in a conversation, and Andrew Reinhardt had said something about um, stratigraphy as an archaeogaming method and using um, Harris matrices uh, to track changes over time. And this professor came out and said, well, that's exactly what I've been doing in my classes, but I didn't know that I was doing archaeogaming. And... That that really stuck with me. That this is this is inherently a transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary field, but because of that, there's a lot of people doing the work and putting in the work that we could label archeogaming, who aren't using that label because they don't know it's accessible to them. Yeah. And the final project that I did was um, I realize now that it's an ontology, but at the time I didn't know that's what I was creating um, of. A couple of different texts that I had read throughout the semester, um, relating key terms to disciplines, to ethics practices, to theories, um, and trying to find where archaeogaming fits. And uh, the answer is it fits everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) If you think you're doing archaeogaming, you're probably doing archaeogaming. So... (laughs) That's awesome. And that was one of the kind of,
2: yeah, the challenges we had of this course was just kind of um, navigating and negotiating and discussing and engaging with all these different topics. And I think what you can clearly see here is just um, how interdisciplinary Braille's own approach to subject matter was. So I think in many ways by us um, breaking down kind of the barriers of the traditional classroom, um, challenging what a classroom space looks like, where we're having our quote unquote, in class discussions, um, really allowed for this kind of creativity and this explosion of thought. Um, and this is reflected in their final project as well. Again, right, not really doing a research paper, but kind of doing an essay of sorts. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, it was very um, powerful and informative practice for both of us and exercise for both of us. Um, but it certainly didn't look like your typical classroom.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say one of the major things for me with especially being able to do so much on Twitter and with Archeogaming having um, like very much its community of practice on Twitter uh, was invaluable. Being able to go to Andrew Reinhardt, who now literally wrote the book Archeogaming (laughs) um, and say, hey, Andrew, uh, what do you think about this? What are your opinions on this? And then most of the time disagreeing with him was honestly great. Um, I I loved having that type of access and access to a community where those, those types of questions, the types of uh, things we were asking and the types of conversations we were having were not only embraced by the community but really expanded on by the community. Uh, so like Dr. Bittner said earlier, uh, the independent study was technically just her and I but it was it was you it was uh so many other people um involved in our classroom
0: yeah it's really amazing how open and participatory that was i think um it now would be a good time for any listeners who've not heard of archeo gaming um it's it's a term you know like you had said uh it can be a lot of things. And, and like you said, Brielle, if you think you're doing it, you're probably doing it. But what are some of the kind of broad brush definitions of archaeogaming?
2: Well, I can start. Um, I mentioned this earlier that uh, traditionally it, it has its origins with this idea of archaeologists using our methods and some of our theories of, of what archeologists archaeology is and what we do and applying those to virtual worlds and virtual spaces. So, um, you know, this really was uh, a reflection of just how many of us archaeologists are, are big nerds who like to play video games and like games that allow us to do archaeology. And then there's this kind of intensified um, effort and recognition that this is a thing and people started talking about it more formally and articles started coming out about about it and discussions and, and Twitter was a place in which this dialogue was happening um, and I think the reason why we both paused and allowed for that dead airspace um, is because now and the kind of outcome of this course was really reconsidering is it just simply doing archaeology in video games or doing the archaeology of video games because that was another piece of this so Andrew Reinhardt had the big digging ET project that involved excavating the uh, so-called lost um, Atari cemetery or a uh, lost Atari um, disposal site where the ET cartridges were supposedly deposed, uh, disposed of on mass. So this was all part of it. And so we kind of challenged these ideas and considered, well, how, what are other ways that people are engaging in not just video games, but games more broadly um, that are archaeological and increasingly anthropological as well? And I think this is something that was very clear to both Brielle and myself as we went through this course was that we're um, I'm trained as a four-field anthropologist, right? I'm a or archaeologist, so I'm an anthropological archaeologist, and so Brielle's being trained as such as well, and how that was really shaping um, our understanding of what we could do, right? So this idea of doing ethnographies, um, much more than just doing archaeological fieldwork, having this kind of contextualized knowledge.
0: That is amazing. So Brielle, how um, how did you find the the kind of definition of archaeogaming applied to The way you were looking at it.
1: I really made it up as I went along. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No one ever wants to hear that answer, but it's true. Um, At the beginning of the course, uh, one of the things that I love about being at a small university is that all of the professors that I've had thus far um, want to grade me for the work that I'm doing, regardless of what that looks like. So um, I did a presentation called Arceo gaming 101 uh, at a small anime convention, small, it's the biggest one in Alberta, um, called Animathon, which takes place here every summer. And I reprised it at the Edmonton Comic and Games Expo. And... As I was speaking to people, not only during the presentations, but um, in their feedback after the presentations through um, surveys that I sent out, I found that the the version of Archeogaming um, that I had seen before, where it's described um, as a theoretical practice rather than a methodological practice, confused a lot of people. So I had to take that and turn it into words and th- they were literally my litmus test, but turn it into words that my parents could understand. Yeah. Um, because they were effectively the people that I were speaking to people who had a knowledge of video games, um, but who had little knowledge of archeology. span And so the one that I ended up using at the very end and throughout the course, um, I believe was that uh, if, if you can put, the words archaeology and video games in the same sentence you're doing archaeo gaming i like it it works
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i think it definitely works and it's it's funny that you say like how how can i explain it to my parents uh my dad um he plays a lot of uh like destiny and skyrim and uh you know he's like in his in his late 50s and <clears throat> so when i was back visiting him for the holidays uh you know, I was down there talking with him, and uh just talking about all the ruins and stuff and collecting uh these these items and taking them you know to the uh crypt arc for the you know him to decode their meaning and purpose and whatnot uh and I was like, this is archeo gaming and and so I was telling my dad about that, and he was you know pretty entertained and, and amused by it but also like all right cool I'm gonna keep playing my game
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sounds great but I've I've got other stuff to do
0: <laughs> yeah I'm about to jump into a raid here so uh <laughs> nice
2: <laughs> I well I was just gonna say, I think that's one of the 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 lovely things about it that's so interesting is how um people engage with it different ways, right? And we talked about this in the course as well, about just because we as academics can say, yeah, but you're doing archaeo gaming, uh, the individual themselves may not say, well, I'm an archaeo gamer, right? So right. there's that kind of um, self-identification within a community of practice versus you know um, us assigning you with this um, this kind of category of this label.
0: Yeah, and I guess it comes to you know kind of the person's, The way the gamer is approaching the game, like if they're approaching it with the thought or, you know, the intention of of applying some kind of methodology or like a theoretical analysis of of what they are doing in the game, then that can be archaeogaming. But if it's just simply to game, then, you know, if they're not self identifying, then maybe it's not archaeogaming all the time.
1: Well, and one of the primary examples that I kept turning to was uh, Grandma Curry or grandma shirley she's a uh, i believe she's in her mid 80s now um but she's a gamer she plays skyrim primarily and she also like shares her quilting projects with the internet and um she plays skyrim to collect plants like, she is super into these plants. She she collects them. She reads the entire description of them um, over Twitch. And then, again, you can watch the video later on YouTube. And um, she has no idea she's doing ethnobotany, but that's exactly what she's doing. <laughs> um, so it's one of those things where um, intent, in, intent can be a portion of it, but there are some times where you're, you're just explicitly doing this practice and you either don't have access to the term or it's, like Dr. Bittner said, just not a term you identify with. Um, I I saw the same thing with Let's Plays um, because they're recording the media in a way that can be shared later, which is inherent to things like Twitch um, and YouTube live streaming. You're you're creating a field journal. You're exploring this virtual world, regardless of whether or not you believe you're exploring it. That's exactly what you're doing, and you're creating a record of your thoughts, feelings, sensations as you're traversing this world. So it's we we have a maxim at McEwen in the anthropology department, and it's uh, actually it's a little more complicated than that. So um, anytime (laughs) you think you're done, uh, it's just a signal for you to go look more.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, So you had mentioned, uh, Brielle, that you had a few moments where you disagreed with uh, Andrew Reinhardt. What were some of the kind of points of departure where you felt like um, you were taking archaeogaming in a different direction?
1: Um, Honestly, primarily with respect to um, practice. So I see things as, like uh, let's plays and what Grandma Shirley is doing as ethnobotany or field uh-huh. journaling, um, and uh, for him, that's more so. Uh, from my understanding, anyways, it's it's more so um, artifact creating. So it's what what they are creating is an artifact to then be studied by an archaeologist, as opposed to they are practicing archaeology. Um, And I understand the distinction here. Uh, One of the main concerns that I've heard a few times, not only from Andrew, but from other people um, who are prevalent in the archaeogaming community is that uh, it's not archaeology if you haven't been trained in archaeology. And I... Obviously, with the history of archaeology um, being a relatively new practice that's been various things throughout the centuries... Yeah. um, I, I can appreciate wanting that distinction to happen. Um, unfortunately, in my opinion, it it's more complicated than that. It doesn't work using these digital mediums that are such great access. If we're going to be looking at um, things like World of Warcraft as sites, well, then those sites can be explored by... multitude of people not just an archaeologist um the 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 way that i've been thinking about it is it's uh like when you go out into the field and you have volunteer archaeologists people who are there to to learn but on site only yes that's that's kind of the analogy that i have running in my head um for people who do things like let's plays um or other exploration based artifact based um that's interesting
0: That's exactly kind of where I was going in, you know, trying to form a comparison in my head too, because I was thinking some of the best archaeologists I've ever met are, have never had a day of formal training in archaeology in their entire lives, but they are such great excavators in terms of, you know, just their, their precision. And also they bring kind of an intuitive approach to it that I think it isn't exactly taught in school. And so, you know, when you have someone who approaches archaeology or the practice of archaeology, you know, from a different way, I think there's a lot of room for creativity and learning there um, that, you know, is often overlooked. So I, th- I think that that's really neat that you're expanding that to archaeogaming to kind of allow for more, um, I don't know if agency is the right word here, but you know, this This is kind of what I'm thinking of.
2: Well, and I think this really reflects a lot of kind of our, uh, our, our approach uh, for me as an archaeologist and what we teach in our classrooms is this really community-based practice as well. So, mm-hmm. again, this idea that volunteers um, and the community are always part of the archaeology that's occurring in the real world. So And like you mentioned, the, the, the skill, the precision, the insights, the knowledge that they can bring um, to dismiss that, I think, is extremely problematic, yeah. and I think this reflects some of the larger discussions that Brielle and I had in the context of this course, and also beyond just generally in all of our conversations around things like ethics, right, and um, some of the ethical concerns when you start to become exclusionary, uh, when you start to privilege uh, certain forms of learning or certain forms of knowledge, uh, that that's problematic as well. So a lot of our our conversations, I think a lot of um, Brielle's insight into this reflect that, this kind of community-based approach, um, this considering other forms of knowledge, these other forms of learning, um, and then also concerns around larger ethical issues that are facing not just archaeology, but anthropology. And I think, again, this reflects Brielle's uh, depth of knowledge when we think about uh, some of the previous uh, previous comments regarding language revitalization, right? This awareness of repeating these kind of ills of colonialism, especially those that are embedded in the academy and, and embedded in education.
0: That is, uh, it's amazing that there's so many opportunities in Archeogaming to explore multivocality in terms of like who's practicing it and who's, um, you know, understanding it and disseminating it, but also the kind of depth that you can go into. So what are, what are some of the, the places where you saw some of those kind of deeper ethical considerations coming
1: into Archeogaming? Dr. Bentner, do you want me to front this one?
2: Yeah. I mean, that was a, a major theme, uh, a major note as, as you put it in your, yeah. your final <laughs> project for me. So beautiful. Uh,
1: one of the major things that, um, I saw was, uh, communities of practice, um, both imagined and constructed communities of practice. Um, so in my final project, I ended up putting an ethics node, and I took the, um, Canadian archaeological associations, four points of ethics, and modifying them to, uh, fit the gaming community, as opposed to, um, they explicitly mention Indigenous communities, obviously, and there there were a couple of things that came from that. Um, the the primary one that like I found that we got stuck on the most throughout the class, um, and Dr. Bitner very helpfully re- began referring to them as sticking points. These these aren't things that I think are incapable of change. Um, especially because the, the gaming community is so so discursive in its practice. like It's always changing and always moving. Uh-huh. Um, but it was with respect to disciplinary divides. Um, so you would have people who were archaeologists. They were trained as archaeologists. Actually, there's, there's a large number of archaeogamers who are classicists even. Um, so who like are not anthropological, uh, archaeologists, which surprised me. Um, but that was just a, an aside that, that I found while I was uh, looking through my data. Um,
0: yeah, that is interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I, I found that it, it happens more often than I, I would have thought, but neither here nor there. Um, but <laughs> because of that, because it's such a, it's a tradition steeped, um, in in archaeological practice uh there wasn't a lot of room at least at the beginning and because it's moving so quickly it's hard to say if this is true even today as we're speaking but um there wasn't a lot of room for people like developers like if you were a developer you also have to be an archaeologist or if you're a media theorist you also have to be an archaeologist and based on the roots of Archeogaming, of that makes perfect sense. Um, but as, as a continuing point, it, it's very exclusionary to continue to assume that, like you mentioned earlier, there, the multivocality has to be there in order for it to be self-sustaining. Like, it's such a niche, um, I guess, area of interest um, and area of practice that... If you're not allowing for those That, that multitude of voices uh, It's going to become stagnant Very quickly and especially with Social media being involved Um where Like this morning I think I had three tweet Threads that probably could have related To Archeogaming if I went back And was like here's the thought I had Um And that's in what like 12 hours maybe I've been awake Um <laughs> so it's it moves very very fast um it's not the same as traditional publishing um andrew reinhardt is finishing his phd and he wrote the archaeogaming gaming book which is coming out i believe this spring um spring or summer which we're all very excited for do not get me wrong i will be buying it but yeah um it, it took quite a while for that to get accepted and then published whereas uh I, he'll, he'll throw out a blog post every couple of weeks and that's Archeogaming now, right? That's, that's what's informing our practice. Um, same thing with the, uh, value conference, uh, there was Kickstarter the year before last, I want to say, um, 2015, I think. And, um, it was a conference, um, somewhere. I want to say cold, but that describes most of the world presently. <laughs> um, but um, it was uh, all gaming, and all gaming as practice. And even for conference submissions, uh, for that to go through took an excruciating long time um, to get the value PDF through the Kickstarter versus like the unconferences, uh, the Public Archaeology Twitter conference, yeah. uh, you know, that there's been two now uh, in the last 12 months, and a lot of archaeogaming has happened there. There's uh, Gingery Gamer did one, um, Florence Nichols. Uh, there's just been so many people who practice archaeogaming in that way, in a way that's socially disseminable, versus traditional publishing which could take you know decades in some cases i yeah. hope not for Archaeogaming, gaming but um the potential is there
0: yeah that's an interesting problem for archeogaming, gaming where you know as it's kind of coupled with more traditional academic uh avenues you know those modes of publication are very slow, but the you know the media itself of of archeogaming, like you had just explained, is so fast paced. So it's interesting that these kind of more democratized, faster paced social media unconferences, as as you had called it, um, are able to keep up with that. And I think that that's a really neat thing. And it's neat that. Uh, archaeology kind of in general seems to be kind of moving in that direction too to be um, approaching you know kind of more open access more participatory uh, kind of wider venue forums that are You know very informal compared to you know what's traditional which is you know a conference that you know is going to cost you several hundred dollars to attend plus airfare and room and board and uh it only happens once a year and you know heaven help you if you want to try and keep up with everything that happens at the conference so um you know it's it's pretty awesome just to see all of these things coming together in the form of archaeogaming but also in kind of archaeology twitter
1: well and As an undergraduate, I would say that it's not even just um, either of those modes. I think it's something that academia is moving towards, um, you know, slowly, because that's what academia does. But um, I organized, or I was part of the organizational team that organized um, the English undergraduate um, conference at McEwen, Reading Identity. and the, the avenues for undergraduate conferences uh, didn't exist a decade ago. Um, they were yeah. very few and far in between. Last year, um, I went with a group of people literally across Canada to um, the Quebec University's English undergraduate conferences, or conference um, as part of an initiative through McEwen. And these opportunities are becoming less rare. Um, Gaming the Gothic, which is out of Sheffield University, has uh, undergraduate submissions possible, graduate submissions, developer submissions. Um, So I I think it's more so a trend towards open access in academia than it is specifically even within the humanities or things like that. Um, Definitely, I know the uh, trans transference I believe it is this year for um at and it's the anthropology economics and political science department is putting on and that's going to be a transdisciplinary again undergraduate conference that I I know I'm going to be tweeting out because that's what I do but uh that it gives more opportunity not only for um training academics but also for um public dissemination like my parents like to come to uh the conferences I present at because I'm the first person in my family to go to university um so they're receiving this information and they're they're understanding this information and it's becoming more common for people who aren't in universities to want access to this type of information um so I think Hopefully, ho- knock on wood, I'm knocking on my forehead right now, but uh, <laughs> hopefully one day we'll see that it's, it is it is a larger trend and that more of the academy will become open open to people.
2: Yeah, and I think archaeology in general has always been pretty good about that. It's always been about how can we make archaeology, at least I believe it's always been part of how can we make archaeology more accessible. And I mean, I'm old enough that I remember... You know and there still is some debate around the challenges of the gray literature right all the work that used to be done by consulting archaeologists and how it used to be seen as like locked away in these off um, these owners of, of companies consulting companies or in um, industries and their partners who are hiring them and that's been opened up, and now it's very common and very much the norm to see consulting archaeologists at what were traditionally academic conferences. I think this movement now to open access is just the next stage in that development. And I think that um, what Braille's really been touching on is how it, within the universities themselves, a lot of this focus has been on how we can highlight uh, the incredible work that our undergraduate minds are doing for us and really taking it
1: outside of the classroom. That is Thank great. You for that, Dr. Bittner. That was a great summary. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bittner, Your you- Your translators on.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> the official translator. Um, so, Dr. Bittner, you had said something earlier on in our conversation about how using Twitter uh, through classrooms helps the learners- um, Kind of communicate and add to the discussion outside of the classroom and and on their own time and at their own pace. Um, you know, we've 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 heard from you and and from Brielle. What has it been like for the other students? Like, it, what's the experience been? Um, you know, in terms of the the communication, has it been you know fairly? Um, you know has has there been good participation in that?
2: Um, I think we didn't see as much um, engagement on Twitter as we might have expected. And part of that was just uh, making sure that other classes were aware of of these conversations occurring in that place. So, um, and also based on what courses I was teaching. So I wasn't actually teaching a a lecture component of Anthropology 206, which is our introduction to archaeology course, but sometimes I do. And so if I had been teaching 206 last term, um, my students would have certainly been aware of our our Anth 498 conversation going on online. Um, but it's been interesting watching non- anthropology students, non-archaeology students become part of this conversation because um, I think a lot of it was in part Burrell was part of several courses where where Twitter was really important to those courses or at least their coursework Um, but also just how it was neat having other students go oh I didn't know we could do something like that at McEwen or I didn't know those were sorts of things you did. So it's been a a really neat way of um, at least in the experience of maybe not so much engaging with the specific course materials, but rather bringing again, archeology span outside of our formal classroom and out of our discipline and bringing it into the larger McEwen student community. And also my colleagues, it was neat having colleagues stop me in the hall and be like, Oh, that stuff you're doing on Twitter as part of that independent study course sounds really neat. So, um, it wasn't just the students, but again, the larger academic community, um, here at McEwen that was really interested in what was going on.
0: That is great. And, um, One thing that was brought up uh, when I was having this conversation at um, the Chuck Mull conference about using uh, social media is uh, I think it was Keisha Supernut that brought it up. Um, She's on Twitter as Archeomapper. Um, But she had said that there's a consideration that you have to have uh, that... um, you know students or you know participants of a conversation on so social media, if you do have it open, you have to consider the possibility that there will be some kind of troll or like an abusive element to it. What ha- have you encountered any of that?
2: Honestly, very little. Uh, a lot less than I would have expected to encounter. Um, I think a lot of ah uh, most of us who are on social media know the risk of the troll. Um, honestly, I find that's one of the things I like about Twitter is that in general, people um, who do engage, at least me regularly, are very interested in having um, very open, respectful conversations. Um, and I think part of it is just kind of setting a tone. And then the other part is just kind of being um, cautious about the kind of words you're using um, and then shutting down um, inappropriate um, troll-like behavior when it is manifest, but it, it is definitely something that um, is a concern and awareness. And again, it's one of those ethical issues as well um, around, you know, what sort of narratives are we amplifying? Uh, what sort of voices are we bringing to the table? And I mean, there is, of course, a much larger discussion right now about um, freedom of speech and what that looks like, particularly in the academy and, and what is meant by freedom of speech and what we should be using in classrooms and not, et cetera. So I, I think there's, um is absolutely right Um It is a concern, but luckily, um, I haven't encountered too much of that.
0: Well, that's good.
2: Yeah, and I I think it's what's continued to motivate me to keep using it as a platform um, because it has been largely so successful. But I I think there's trolls in real life, too. Um, The site that, for example, we ran a field school at this summer uh, was just located right here in Edmonton. We had a big community-based project, a lot of media attention about it, and um, the site was looted. And I mean, that's kind of um, old school uh, you know, trolling, as it were, of archaeological work, right? People who are disregarding um, the the value and and the effort that goes into an excavation by simply just stealing things away or yeah. damaging stuff at archaeological sites, right? So um, I think we can encounter that in many different levels. And, and online is just one arena in which we can have people who are going to challenge what we do and what we teach, um, what we value.
0: Definitely. Well, um, Are there any other things that you would like to share about, uh, the course or, um, you know, your experience of, you know, following Archeogaming?
1: I mean, I'll leave that to you, Brielle. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, definitely for me, uh, I, I cannot say how thankful I am for the Archeogaming community, the archaeology community, um, and specifically the public archaeology community, uh, for being so so open and welcoming. Like Dr. Bittner said, we had an overwhelmingly positive experience. Um, and as well, I had uh, classmates from actually ANTH421, Language and Power, um, interacting with uh, some of the archaeogaming gaming stuff I was doing outside of class, just hanging out in the common room kind of thing. Um, so the fact that there is such a supportive community out there uh, it was incredible, and it continues to be incredible. Um, so I, I just can't say thank you enough. Thank you for, for having us on here. It's, uh, it was really exciting to, to be able to see, see how things are working from this side of the lens, I guess, lens microphone.
0: Yeah, well, the pleasure's all mine. It's, it's been great having you on the show. Um, so I guess before we start to wrap it up, um, where can people find you online?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter as at I'll spell that out because I have this delightfully spelled last name. So that's at K-B-I-I-T-T-N-E-R. Uh, and you can also just Google Katie Bittner and that'll come up with my profile and contact information um, on uh, the McEwen website.
1: Yep. Yeah, and uh, obviously I'm also on Twitter as Mixmore. So it's M-X-M-O- I-R-E-A B-H, uh, apparently the tough name gang stays together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Solidarity.
2: Solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: um, and I also have a WordPress blog, which is mixmore.com.
2: Oh, yeah. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, one of the things that Brielle did for our course was to um, provide a guest student blog post on the blog that I uh, co-write with my colleague and dear friend here at McHugh and Dr. Sarah Schulist. And you can find us at anthropologyas.wordpress.com. And so we have a couple of Archeogaming posts there. I imagine as Brielle and I start to look at doing an honors thesis uh, together, that will um, also pop up there as well.
0: Awesome. And I'll have links to all this in the show notes over at uh, godigahole.com. Um, so what's next for you all? Um, you know, as it, I think it's it's great that um, there's been a relationship formed. You know, as as like student teacher, but also as like kind of like mentor colleague um, through the course, but also through this collaborative, very participatory um, you know project that you did. Um, are are you going to keep working together on on research? Do you have more classes together uh, in the future?
2: So yeah, we have a hopefully that honors thesis project that's gonna be coming up. So myself and Dr. Schulist are gonna be um, co-supervising Brielle in their work. Um, I actually am working with one of my other colleagues on developing a course for next winter term for us, which is uh, anthropology of science fiction. And there will be an RKO gaming component of that class because science fiction RKO gaming is just uh, a match made in yeah. heaven yeah and then i'll also be having archaeology agenda is going to be back in rotation next year as well so i'm planning on that and incorporating uh, a more explicit archaeo gaming component into that course so rather than it just being a single student's research project we'll have a whole uh, unit within the course that will um, examine it but i don't know other than that brielle if we have any courses together coming up do we
1: um, honestly, when I go through the course selection, I look for your name and Dr. Schulist's <laughs> name first, so uh, <laughs> I can near guarantee that yes, we will be having other courses together <laughs> in some capacity. That's great. That it's been it's been incredible to be able to, like you say, have that student teacher relationship, but also a mentor mentee relationship, and uh, definitely going to be cultivating that in, in the future.
0: For sure. Very, very very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to the go dig a hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is Uh You can find me on all the social media platforms at hole.